Hello, welcome to the very first episode of Not Another Nerdy Podcast, where you guessed it, it's another nerdy podcast. I'm your host, Britt Rodriguez, and today's episode is about the newly released House of the Dragon, as well as a little She-Hulk, and a really in-depth review with the very first episode of Sandman that's now available on Netflix. So starting with House of the Dragons, um, it's the prequel series of Game of Thrones, and it's about three years ago. I actually have already seen Game of Thrones twice. And I decided to restart it again now that House of the Dragon has been released. I just want to see if there's like any hidden Easter eggs or things that I might have missed. Um, but when the show first kicks off, we start with King Jaehaerys sitting on a ruined Hall. Uh, actually, we see it in Game of Thrones. And you hear an older Rhaenyra doing a voiceover describing that in the year 101, he had called a council so that he can choose his heir after he lost his sons. And, and needing to choose between his oldest grandchild, which is Rhaenys, he's the daughter of Amon, the oldest, who died about nine years prior, and between Viserys, who is his oldest male grandson, who is the son of Balon, who just recently died, so obviously because he's a man, he chose Viserys. She looks pissed, overlooked to be the next heir again. Um, so we start meeting more of the members, uh, like members of the High Council. We have Otto Hightower, who's the of the king. We also meet his daughter, Allison, who's actually friends with Rhaenyra, Viserys' daughter. We also meet um, Grealis. He is Rhaenys' husband. He's also on the small council, and he's the master of the ships. They call him the Sand Snake. He's, and we have uh, Great Maester Melios, uh, Lyman Beesbury. He's master of the coin. Lionel Strong is master of laws. And then, of course, we meet the king's younger brother. He is actually the commander of the City Watch. They actually gave him this position, I guess, to try to keep him under control, give him something to do. And he's the one who establishes the gold cloaks, which we see Jamie and the rest of the King's Guard wearing in Game of Thrones. And his name is Damon Targaryen. Uh, I was a little skeptical when I heard that Matt Smith would be playing a villain. Um, I was first introduced to him in Doctor Who, so I still see him as like this silly, lovable character. And then Morbius happened, and don't even want to get into that. But so far, I like this, like, mysterious, overly cocky, but, like, has this boyish attitude to him. So we'll see how his character develops throughout the season. He's actually the younger brother of the king, um, and he deems the king as weak, and he feels like he would do a way better job as running the kingdom. So he has declared himself the heir, even though Viserys' wife, Ama, is pregnant, and it's possibly a boy. Um, so he does all these crazy stunts. I think in the first episode, he like gathered people around King's Landing with the King's with the City Watch, um, and they start yelling accusations at people, and it's immediately like chopping off legs, chopping off genitals, killing a bunch of people where they have to just haul them off in carts. And Otto, who you can tell right from the beginning, he hates Damon. He's like, why is he even here? And then, of course, the king, he wants to please everybody, so he doesn't necessarily condone his actions, but he doesn't condemn them either. So everyone in the council is kind of looking at him like, letting your brother get away with more crap you shouldn't be doing. So, the, like I said, his wife, Ama, who's also his cousin, which for some reason I completely forgot, the Targaryens were just full of questionable marital choices. Well, she's pregnant. Um, she tells her husband that this is going to be her last child. She suffered a lot of miscarriages, and she really apologizes if she can't give him an heir. But 
either way, she's done. Um, so the High Council starts discussing, like, a tourney to celebrate the new heir. Damon's going to participate, and he believes, you know, until a boy is produced, he is next king. And there's a lot of lords across Westeros who also believe this. So they're inviting people, and right in the middle of the tourney, Amos starts giving birth. It is a very graphic scene. Um, they actually have to give her, like, a C-section to cut her stomach open because it's either her and the baby or just the baby. So her husband chooses to save the baby, and she's fully awake for all of this. And because of the complications, how risky it is, both Ama and their son, who they were going to name Balon, they end up dying. Um, and Viserys and Rhaenyra are just devastated. She lost her mom. He lost his wife. They end up holding a funeral, and Rhaenyra's dragon, Cyrax, he ends up lighting the pyre, sets their bodies on fire, and first you see Ama, and they're sad, and then the angle turns, and you see the baby, so then you realize the baby actually doesn't make it either. Um, Rainier is actually the one who does the command, so this would be the first time we hear them say, I'm not even going to try to say it, Dracarys, but obviously her Valerian is so much better than mine. It actually sounds so much different than Danny's. Danny's probably sounds more like mine. Um, than anything else. So she says to Karis and they end up lighting the pillars on fire. Um Damon uh goes to like a pleasure house and declares himself heir again and he calls the Sarah's son like heir for the day and of course Otto finds out and he tells the Sarah's the next council meeting. And they're trying to convince him to pick a new heir. So Corellius you know he says you should pick my wife and then they decide they're going to pick Rhaenyra, and all the men are like, yeah, either way it's not happening. Um, a woman's not sitting on the throne. But Viserys does end up confronting his brother afterwards, and he tells him that he has to return to his wife in the Vale, and is going to be the new heir, and Damon is not having it. Either way, he has to accept it, and he ends up leaving. And the show ends with, like, her coronation, all the lords, you know, squaring their loyalty to her, and then the tone just kind of changes. Um, also, there's like really creepy, like side story where Otto is sending his daughter into the king's quarters and tells her to wear like her mom's dress and her mom just died and it's to get her to try to like seduce the king. Gross. Um, I know they do actually end up marrying and having a child and Al places their son on the Iron Throne even though Rainier has been named heir, and that's actually what sparks the Dance of Dragons. Um, and what Danny says is a part of the beginning of the end of the whole Targaryen line. But so far, I like the show. Um, I like that we could see locations that we grew to know, like, in Game of Thrones. And things are different, like in the Red Keep, is different. There's the Dragon Pit, which, in Game of Thrones, it's no longer intact. It's completely destroyed. Danny actually says it's the beginning of the end for her family because they kept the dragons locked in there and they start, you know, getting smaller and smaller. Uh, we also hear references to Princess Nymeria. That's who um, Aya Stark named her direwolf. Then there's Stark's sister, that's one. Um, I am still kind of learning the dark, the history of Dark Sister, but I know it belongs to one of Aegon's wives, who's also his sister. Um, it's an interesting show. I mean, actually, when I hear Dark Sister, I've been also rewatching all the Star Wars shows and movies. Um, so when I heard Dark Sister, I thought of Dark Saber. So my 
franchises have been crossing lately. I feel like the show is already filling plot holes that Game of Thrones left us with, like The Long Night, and Sarah tells Rhaenyra that Aegon had a vision of The Long Night and took over Westeros because he believed they were the only ones who could defeat them, as long as the Targaryens sat on the throne, and they passed that secret on down to the next heir, which, at the end of Game of Thrones, Danny technically sat on the Iron Throne, and we also have John, who's a secret Targaryen, kind of on the Iron Throne. People listen and respect him as a leader. Um, and even though neither of them do defeated the Night King, the whole idea that a Targaryen must be on the throne in order to defeat the Long Night, and that's what they call the, the Song of Ice and Fire, so I guess it's partially true. Um, and I think we'll see more of Valerian culture in House of the Dragons, because they are more closely tied to Valeria than Danny is in Game of Thrones. Like they're more attuned of their home world than she is. So like the accents are different and talking about their history is different. Things about the Targaryens that are unknown is brought to light. Another part of the show I really like is that the Iron Throne looks incredible. It has like these large piles of swords um, that like spread all the way down the stairs. It looks more accurate to like the Tower of Swords that you see in the books. Whereas in Game of Thrones, it's a more toned down version of it. Um, and I also like that the characters are more dynamic, and so far, you get to see a lot more dragons. And I think this is going to be a really good season. Hopefully, it stays the course of good. Uh, I've read some of the books, um, and I've also, you know, done independent research. So I kind of know where the story's going, but I won't spoil it because I don't know how. Connected, we know once, I think we got to like season five of Game of Thrones, things started going off the rails there. So, but no spoilers. Um, just a short recap. I, I never knew that I cared about Captain America's identity until I watched the first episode of She-Hulk. <laughs> the end credit scene, they're like drinking and they're both tipsy, quote unquote, and Hulk reveals that like he lost his virginity during the USO tour, and she hawks like, ah, I knew it, because you, you realize she's not drunk, and all I can think of, could you imagine being that person, that woman, going around bragging that she took Captain America's virginity? I mean, I guess she wouldn't have known that he'd go on to do even better things, either way. It, the show starts off, you know, Jen and Bruce are in a car, and he's explaining that he created, like, this device that allowed him to heal his arm, so he can return to just being his normal self, and then out of nowhere, a ship appears in the car crash. And I guess Bruce's blood gets into her system, and she wakes up with the ability to become a hawk. So he's smart hawk again, arm completely healed, and they go to this remote island, and he's like, I want to prepare you for this, because he's like, decade, I have this whole instruction manual, and then she hawks out, and she has complete control over herself, she can talk, and he's just you know, it took him all those years just to gain control and still the hawk. Still kind of makes unintelligible grunts. Sometimes he speaks. But she has a lot more control than he has. So she attempts to, like, try to return to her life as a lawyer. Um, she's in court. Titania? She breaks into the courtroom. Jen turns into She-Hawk for the first time. Everyone's, like, shocked. Her assistant's already prepared. And it just, to me, happened so quickly. I might have to rewatch it again because I feel like maybe I missed parts, but it just seemed like the show happened really quickly. I do like that it has a nice comedic tone to it 
Um, but it feels feels a lot more like how the most recent Marvel shows have been, like Miss Marvel, where it focuses so much on trying to be like funny and quirky that the substance isn't there. So I'm gonna try to give Miss Marvel a go again and then try to rewatch the episodes of She Hulk that have already came out and see if there's something more than just trying to be funny. I really love Marvel. My husband's a huge Marvel fan and so it's always been a part of our life down to our kids. I just feel like when the substance is gone and it starts just being made to be made, it kind of ruins the quality that they put out over the years. But that's just an opinion and that opinion can always change. Uh, and the best opinion I have, the show I just started watching was Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. It premiered on Netflix on August 5th. I typically don't binge watch things. Like I said, I, I feel like I miss out on a lot of details. I lose focus. So I'm like scrolling through TikTok. I'm no longer caring what's going on. But this show really captivated my interest. The first episode, Sleep of the Just, starts with a voiceover. Um, the lead actor, Tom Sturridge, he plays Morpheus, or who we know as Dream. And he's talking about how there's two worlds, the waking world and the dream world. And it shows Bill Patterson's John Hathaway falling asleep en route to, like, wherever destination he's going to. And then he's in the dream world. And the King of Dreams talking about how there are dreams, nightmares, and it's just, like, beautiful realm. And it's full of things you'd obviously only imagine in your dreams. And you start getting guided through it as if you're flying with ravens, which they're actually messengers for dream between the living world and the dream world to kind of get an idea of their importance in this sense. And then it takes you to his throne room and we see dream for the first time. And he's talking to, I, I would say follower, uh, Lucian. And he tells her that she's headed to capture a nightmare named Corinthian. And Hawthorne wakes up. And that's when the show really kicks off and he's at Burgess Estate. We meet this young kid named Alex Burgess. He's played by Benjamin Evan Ainsworth. He guides Hathaway to meet his father, who likes to call himself the Magus. And as they're passing through, you see like this room with book figures. There's chanting. There's someone in the middle who looks like he's naked and about to stab something or himself possibly. It's an anime. And then Mr. Sykes comes out and goes, you know, you guys, he'll meet you in the study. So Alex clearly flushed. Jump, didn't expect that, leads into the study. And you see Roger Burgess. Um, he's being oh so kind. He loudly proclaims that he lost his son Randall. He was his greatest joy. And right in front of Alex. And Hathaway's like, I didn't even know you had another kid. So the poor kid's just already feeling left out. And he asks how um, Roger asks Hathaway for the Magdalene Grimoire says he intends on using it to summon the angel of death and force him to revive his son. And I guess he was able to convince Hathaway to help because Hathaway's son, Edmund, just died. And that convinces him to go along with it to see if they can bring him back. Um, based on both of the son's death, there is a war happening. They didn't really go into much detail except that he, Roger lost his son in Gallipoli, which is in Turkey. And so I looked it up, and the only thing happening around that time was in World War One. So the show takes place about 1916 when it starts out. So it switches back to Morpheus. He's about to turn return Corinthian. Um, he's like mid 
removing someone's eyes. He has like these sunglasses on, so you, it gets weird when you figure out what's under the sunglasses. So he is in the middle of about to send him back, and then suddenly gets summoned away. And it took me a second, but Roderick Burgess is actually paid by Charles Dance, who's also Tyrion Lannister, and we were just talking about Game of Thrones. And he's the leader of a secret group. They're called the Order of Ancient Mysteries. And they believe if they capture Death, they can force him to do their bidding. So they do this, they put like a protection barrier down, they do this whole spell, and they think they're going to capture Death, but really they capture Dream, they just don't know it yet. So while he's unconscious, trapped inside this protection spell, Roderick takes his tools, he has like his uh, pouch, has Dream Sand in it, and that allows him to give people dreams or nightmares, but also allows them to teleport between both realms. And he has his helm. I read it was made up of dream matter and the bones of a dead god, and that protects him while he travels between realms, and it also gives him, like, this prestige. Um, and then he has uh, a dreamstone. That allows him to build dreams and bring them to life. So they start taking his stuff, and then Morpheus's raven, Jessamy, comes, tries to attack them, they squat water away, she flies off, and you don't see her for a little bit of the episode, but when they do get Morpheus awake, Roderick tells him, like, I'll let you go, and I'll give you your stuff back, but you need to do what I'm telling you to do, you have to do whatever I say, and Morpheus is just not responding, so they get pissed, they leave him down there, and then suddenly Corinthian appears, he's like, listen, it'll be in your best interest, and my best interest, to keep him trapped. This isn't the, the angel of death, this is actually a dream. And, you know, his raven, his raven is just me, and the only way you can trap him is to create this glass sphere to keep him inside, and you can actually use his tools to make your life better. Like, he's given this guy the whole blueprint to do whatever he wants to. And Roderick's like, well, why are you helping me? What do you get out of this? Nothing. All I want you to do is keep him trapped, and I can do whatever I want to. I don't really care what you do. So... That's exactly what they do. They start constructing this glass sphere and keep them hidden in the basement. And since Morpheus is trapped, people aren't able to dream. And in the voiceover, they say a million people around the world are either unable to sleep or they won't wake up. And they call it the sleeping sickness. And while people are either like going crazy because they can't sleep or loved ones are watching their family members age and they're not waking up, Roderick and his disciples, they're over here using the tools to benefit extend their lives, get money, get more prestige, and the rest of the world is being affected. And they do not care. Like, I don't understand why he plays in these roles, but he is the most um, selfish person, but always wealthy. And then we fast forward 10 years, and Alex and everyone else is at a party at his dad's house, and there's people waiting outside trying to get into the party, and goes up there and tells them there's no more capacity they start getting upset you know who are you who are you to tell me you can't come in and this lady pops up uh named ethel she's actually playing by i think her name is Ni niam walsh i think it's very pronouncing that wrong which is very possible i'm very terrible pronouncing names but he helps alex he's like this is his son he can also do magic like you're dumb for talking to him like this and they start kissing his ass and try to pay him to get in so, because she helps him, he allows her to get to the party, and somehow she becomes Roderick's mistress, and she looks like she's 
maybe no more than 29, but she's like 60. It's very Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, the morning after. Uh, Alex is cleaning up after the party, and two, I guess, of the outside guards supposed to be watching him. They want to leave. And he's like, oh, you can go, and, and I'll look after him. So they're like, peace out. So they leave, and he ends up going down there trying to talk to Dream, trying to convince him that his father's not a bad person. He's, you know, all you have to do is talk. Nobody wants you trapped in here, which everybody wants you trapped in there besides Alex. And his dad comes in, and he's, like, trying to attack him, yelling at him, saying he's trying to betray him. And then suddenly, Destiny finally reappears, starts knocking at the window. And Roger gets really pissed and says, you want to prove that you're not trying to betray me? Kill the bird. And Destiny gets in. She finds a match. She lights the couch on fire so she can distract everyone and gets down to the basement. And right before she's about to save him, she's pecking at the spear. Alex shoots with the shotgun. Right in front of Dream's face. So not only has he lost his tools, and he's been trapped in here for so far. A decade? He just lost his companion, his, his bird, his messenger, his friend. And he is very visibly devastated, but the actor has such a great way of just having this really straight, emotionless, but emotional face which is very impressive. So you can tell he's upset but still trying to maintain, like, you can't break the composure. After this, Ethel finds out that she's pregnant. And then she ends up confiding in Alex that her dad, his dad, wants her to get an abortion. And she's not having it. So she ends up stealing Dream's tools and a bunch of Roderick's money, and she just dips. So then Bar Roderick goes to Morpheus, and it's like, you know, he realized he literally has the leverage because that keeps him trapped. Again, I'm going to give you freedom. All you have to do is give me, well, immortality and easy. And you could go. Which is a far cry from I just want to bring my son back to life, which is clearly he got the power to his head, so really I don't think he ever wanted to bring his son back to life. And still, Morpheus is not budging. And Roderick keeps getting angrier and angrier. He's like tapping on the glass. No budging. Alex and him start fighting, Alex like, there's no reason, like, you need to calm down. And they keep going back and forth, and Roddy tells him how he wishes that other son was alive. He is devastated, obviously, but he seems more relieved. So he ends up going out to the grounds, meeting the groundskeeper, Paul. They have a growing relationship with each other, and Alex eventually brings Paul downstairs to meet Morpheus. Seems like Paul is trying to convince him, like, you gain his trust and you speak to him, you know, maybe we can work something out, but nothing changes. And Ethel's off somewhere, so it had to be like nine months because she gave birth to their son, Johnny, her and Roger's son. And then she's wearing still the dream film, so she clearly hasn't given the stuff up. You can see the helm and the sand in the background. And then we fast forward again, another 70 years. Alex is old, he's in a wheelchair, he's married to Paul. And he goes downstairs to tell Morpheus, you know, he wants to be rid of him. He doesn't want him there. But, you know, he could have let him out. I feel like he's still kind of scared of living under his father's directive, even though his father's dead. But as they're leaving, Paul smudges the barrier with the wheelchair. It kind of gives Morpheus the nod, like, you're good to go. And immediately, 
two security guards down there. One of them falls asleep. Dream's able to come out into his dream and takes some sand and breaks out of the dream, the sphere he's trapped in, uses the sand to put him asleep and send himself back to his realm. So, he's gone. Corinthian can feel it. He's off, cutting somebody's eyes out and behind his glasses are teeth. I don't know if he's feeding his eyes. Eyes? Behind his glasses are teeth. Or his eyes should be. It's, yeah. I want to know more about that. Alex wakes up Thinking he's dreaming, but in reality he's, well, he thinks he's awake, but in reality he's actually dreaming. And he goes up to what seems like the next level, or like the attic, and he meets Dream. And he's getting younger and younger as he's talking to Dream. And Dream, who's understandably pissed, is like, do you know what it's like to be in here for a century? And all the damage that you guys have caused. And Alex is like, I'm sorry, we didn't mean this. He's like, nah, I got a gift for you. You're never going to wake up again, my guy. You're done. And he doesn't. Paul's like shaking up with the doctors. They can't get him awake. Morpheus goes back to his room. He's already done what he needs to do. He doesn't care. And he's greeted by Lucian. And as they're approaching the gate, she tells him like, home is not what he used to be. It's in ruins. It crumbles. Everyone either left or they thought you abandoned them. And they're gone. So he says, I'm going to fix my home and I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to restore order. I am one of the endless. Like, this is who I am. And that's exactly what he sets out to do. They they go in. The last scene is literally them going into what used to be the palace. And that's where it ends. And I was actually looking it up. And I said, oh, what's the endless? Well, I guess the endless is like siblings. And it's death, dream, destiny, destruction, desire, despair, and delirium. And I guess they're the endless entities that make up of like human experience. Honestly, the show was captivating. The cast was great. The sets were beautiful. His voice gives you, like, this eerie but calming, dreamy effect. And I really cannot wait for the rest of the show. So I'll probably be covering it as I watch it. Again, I don't binge watch it. But, I, I, I you know, I just might. <laughs> that was all my thoughts on the House of Dragon, the Sandman, and a little bit of She-Hawk. I really thought they... All are so different, but they captivate your attention in a variety of ways. I am definitely excited to keep watching Sandman. Again, I'm going to try to rewatch Seahawk, maybe see if I can get something different. Overall, I just got, huh, it's funny. But not, I don't have the desire to learn more about her, but that could change. And then, of course, House of the Dragons. I love Game of Thrones. So, and I always want to know more about the Targaryens when Game of Thrones is out. So, it's good to have this whole background to it so that was the show and again my name is Brittany and I enjoyed sharing my thoughts and insights with you so if you don't mind coming back and listening to I know another nerdy podcast have a good day